This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello, I'm Alice Gray and welcome to another episode of Inside the Petri Dish, the podcast that puts science under the microscope. Given the unprecedented circumstances and uncertain times we're currently facing, our podcast is bringing you a number of COVID special episodes with interviews with experts about the pandemic. With the breaking news that vaccines will start to be rolled out in the UK, the global effort for solving this global pandemic comes into question. How do we stop wealthy countries from hoarding and gatekeeping other countries from accessing vaccines? And how do we ensure that all countries are eradicated from COVID, regardless of their wealth? Dr Farah joins us to talk us through combating vaccine nationalism and the importance of a worldwide collaborative approach to inoculations. nationalism is when wealthier nations tend to secure doses of vaccines for diseases for themselves at the exclusion basically of the less wealthy nations. No one is safe until everybody is safe. You need to make sure that really it's a global collaboration because there are risks for yourself as well as for everybody else. My name's Farah, I'm an infectious diseases and medical microbiology registrar, so medical doctor in the UK specialising in that, Um, and I'm also global health and uh, infectious diseases researcher. There are about 170 odd vaccines that are being tested worldwide, and of these, around 20% uh, will get through their clinical trials and make it to basically having good enough results that will roll them out. There are three main vaccines that we've had press releases about recently. So the three that we've got at the moment are Moderna, Pfizer and the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccines. Moderna and Pfizer have both made RNA or messenger RNA-based vaccines. Uh, The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is a viral vector vaccine. So the news that we had today was that the UK has approved the Pfizer mRNA vaccine for distribution within the UK, and that was done by our health, our MHRA, uh, Medicines Health Regulatory Authority. Vaccine nationalism is when wealthier nations tend to secure doses of vaccines for diseases for themselves at the exclusion, basically, of the less wealthy nations. And we saw this happening in the uh, pandemic for swine flu back in 2009. So it was quite a concern for people like the, the Global Vaccine Alliance and the WHO that this would happen again with COVID, especially as this pandemic didn't clear up the way that the swine flu wandered. It can manifest in other ways too, so where countries will get behind the vaccine that their countries are making to the point that sometimes they'll start undermining the efforts or uh, producing misinformation about other vaccines that are being developed at the same time. And it can also impact upon supply chains for different vaccines. So there are different ingredients that obviously, or different machinery or different workers that go into making up all of the different vaccines across the world. Um, So there's a risk that vaccine nationalism might then put pressure on supply chains where one country doesn't want to help another country become the first to make the vaccine. So those were all the sort of fears that were coming out about this idea of vaccine nationalism. 
um, where you end up getting the inequitable distribution of whatever vaccines would be available for COVID. So the problem with vaccine nationalism and the idea of hoarding vaccines is that if countries compete, there are so many countries across the world that won't get access to the vaccine. And there's a really good phrase that uh, Gavi and the WHO are using, which is no one is safe until everybody is safe. I think we've really seen this in the pandemic so far because we've seen how travel can lead to the importation of infectious diseases. And then that results in increased rates of local transmissions. You know, and this is a pretty transmissible virus. And even if you ignored the ethical arguments about whether or not you care about half of the world burning or not, there's actually really good arguments for the equitable distribution of vaccines in terms of protecting your own country too. And that comes with the idea of making sure that um, you're not importing infections later on. And don't forget, it's not just about the poorest countries either. So one of the important things to take away in terms of who's been developing the vaccines that have come to the forefront first on this, this is coming from the US and the UK. And a lot of these sorts of countries that are wealthy enough to do this, that are creating their own vaccines, will have a bilateral agreement between themselves and the manufacturers, which means that they get access those vaccines. There are quite a number of wealthy countries throughout the rest of the world that don't have that agreement in place. So, you know, we're talking about countries in Europe, for example, where you might want to go on holiday. And if they don't have access to making sure that their COVID rates stay low and that they're not vaccinating their populations, it has a knock-on effect for everybody, including just going on holiday, for example. It needs to be a global collaborative effort to make these sorts of vaccines because in the first instance it already is. So we have expertise from all over the world when it comes to experience with making these vaccines and that needs to be taken first and foremost, I think, into account. Like I said, there's um, supply chains uh, that are important in creating the vaccines to start with. You need to make sure that really it's a global collaboration because there are risks for yourself as well as for everybody else. COVAX is essentially um, like a cooperative insurance policy that's been created uh, with support from the WHO, the World Bank um, and Gavi, who are the Global Vaccine Alliance basically. Um, and that is predominantly to ensure that the distribution of any safe and effective vaccine that's created will be equitable. Because wealthier countries will always have access to medicines. They have more money, they have more resource, and they're often involved in the development of vaccines. The COVAX agreement asks the wealthier countries to pull their buying power together rather than just grabbing for themselves and competing with each other. And these investments can then increase the number of factories that are producing vaccines across the world. Um, so it's a benefit to everybody, not just to the um, poorer countries who wouldn't be able to afford to make the vaccines for themselves. I think when it first came about, it wasn't that popular. Uh, there wasn't much of a, well, as they put it, there was a tepid response from the global powers, put it that way. But actually, they um, have done a lot of research in showing the effect on the global economy of a continued pandemic and showing that actually it's in the interest of every country to 
try and contribute to making the distribution of any safe and effective vaccine equitable. It means as well that wealthier countries don't have to put all their eggs in one basket. A really good example of this is actually the Pfizer vaccine, which is, it's great. You know, we're, we're finding out already it's got 95% efficacy against symptomatic COVID. That's brilliant. However, it needs to be kept at a minus 70 degrees Celsius storage. That in itself is an issue. It sounds like more of a problem for countries within Africa, for example, but actually it's a problem for even parts of the US. It's a problem for even parts of the UK just getting it into a care home and making sure that you're not, you know, wasting all of that money. So if the US only ever, for example, or the UK only backed one vaccine and it turns out that vaccine either didn't make it through clinical trials or, for example, the Pfizer vaccine has these sorts of problems, then you're sort of sticking all your eggs in one basket. Whereas the COVAX Alliance, it tries to make sure that it's backing several vaccines with what I think it has about nine in development that it's backing to try and make sure that any vaccines that come about, everybody will have access to it. At the same time, the way that the um, the cooperative has worked and the only way they could get people to, I think, buy into it was to say that actually countries can for themselves still create their bilateral agreements with manufacturers. They're trying to make sure that it doesn't quite drive up the prices, though, because they're trying to make sure that when you buy into it with whatever agreement process you've got, you will be backing the manufacturers to actually drive out the production and the distribution of the vaccine at the same time. But normally manufacturers are reluctant to risk making the significant investments needed to build or scale up vaccine manufacturing facilities until they've received approval for a vaccine. So I think part of the important part of COVAX is to support that increased manufacturing process, which means that there's sort of collective purchasing power basically to negotiate the highly competitive prices um, and then pass those results on to manufacturers. So even though it won't completely stop any driving up of um, prices, the COVAX alliance will uh, help to mitigate that somewhat. There's also the additional thing that a lot of the uh, vaccine manufacturers have agreed to work on a not-for-profit basis for the duration of the pandemic. So in particular, Oxford and AstraZeneca, that was a condition of uh, Oxford working with AstraZeneca. They wanted to make sure that AstraZeneca would not be for profit for the duration of the pandemic, specifically to try and get a vaccine out to the most, uh, to the lowest resource setting. If the first vaccines produced aren't the best ones, which is likely, it's likely that as we get better at this, we're going to get better, more efficacious vaccines, but are more likely to reduce transmission or have fewer side effects, for example, or we change the dose of it or whatever, what have you. If your one that you've backed is not the best one and then you expect everybody else to help you out to get the best one later, you're going to come up a bit shortchanged. <laughs> Why should anybody help anybody else if you're not going like, to commit to the pot in the first place? Say New Zealand, for example, say that nobody in their country decides to have vaccine because they feel like they've done really well at stamping it out. They stamped it out in the context of a global pandemic where their borders are closed, where they've had extended lockdowns. As soon as their borders open up and they get this increased risk of importation, especially as most vaccines don't quite fulfil that holy grail of completely getting rid of transmission, 
what they do is reduce your risk of severe disease. I mean, that's what the majority of vaccines will tend to do. You're still going to be transmitting it. You're still going to have then your population is then going to be at risk again. In terms of the US response to COVID in general, I don't think the UK has done brilliantly either. So we're talking about throwing stones from glass houses to an extent. What I will say is I think it's been, from, from a purely research point of view, fascinating how different cultures have responded differently and how your culture within a country may have affected your response to the pandemic. Um, and I think that probably has a lot more weight than we all know until much later when people are able to look back and find out what sort of messages were being um, put out at each point in time and why people were more likely to do X, Y, Z than others. Because although people are people, and I thoroughly believe that, and they can be angels and devils, I think actually majority of people don't mean anybody else any harm. They're just wanting to get on with their own lives and... And I think culture has had a massive impact on that. I think if we learned anything from the pandemic, though, it's that we're all linked. What happens in one country clearly has an effect on what happens in pretty much every other country. We're also incredibly social creatures. Um, and the effects of this pandemic have been truly devastating for a lot of people, particularly those in businesses, particularly those in small businesses, and particularly those in the hospitality sector and tourism. So COVAX to me, even with my limited business sense, seems like sound business sense, because as far as I can see, it means that you are more likely to be able to open up across the world if you make sure that everybody has access to a vaccine. In terms of the impact of Donald Trump not signing up for COVID, I think for a man who works in the hospitality sector, it's particularly short-sighted. I don't think it sends particularly the right message, but obviously a key global player like the US to not be taking part. But even if you take out the idea of it not sending the right message, it feels very isolationist because who are they playing with if they're only playing with themselves in the end? So I'm sure there are economic arguments either way, but I think increasingly it's being thought that actually an equitable distribution of a vaccine would actually benefit everybody so even from a self-serving point of view, it's probably worth investing in. One thing that they're probably going to have to do is try and control their rates in order to get vaccinated population safe. The other, I mean, the other thing that you have to think of is at the moment we're talking about the mass distribution of a vaccine, the safe and effective vaccine. That mass distribution is going to require army inputs. It's going to require big stadiums to try and vaccinate as many people as possible in a situation where you don't want people to mix in the first place. So there's a huge logistical issue with this, and that is going to be more of a problem, I think, for the US, whose rates are so high at the moment compared to, like, for example, New Zealand, who might feel like they don't necessarily have a reason to vaccinate, but could in a much more feasible setting. Mm -hmm.